the sooner you realize what you want to do, the sooner you should do it. Obviously, there's some planning that needs to be involved, but when I realized that I missed being in policy when I was working at a big firm, I got really good advice from people just saying, well, what's to stop you from doing it right now? Why do you have to be there five more years? That's just, it's not a waste, but it's in, in some ways it might be. That's just five more years of you putting off what's important to you. This is Personal Jurisdiction, a podcast where we get personal with lawyers about their careers. We're your hosts. I'm Allison Friedman. And I'm Hallie Ritsu. Join us for season two as we explore the variety of career paths available to JDs. Hallie, we're back. We are back. Can you tell us about who our guest is today? I certainly can. Would be my absolute pleasure. Today's guest is Suha Subramaniam, and he is a delegate of the Virginia House of Delegates, and he represents District 87, which comprises Loudoun County and Prince William County in Virginia. He has served Virginia since 2020, and Suhas has also acted as counsel for a number of startups. Prior to serving Virginia, he was a policy advisor and special assistant for technology for the White House during the Obama administration. And Suhas is a 2008 graduate of Tulane University and a 2013 Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law graduate as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Enjoy the show. Suhas, thank you so much for joining us on Personal Jurisdiction We're going to start at the beginning of the story, or at least the beginning of the law story, and would love to chat about why you decided to go to law school or what led you to law school. Thanks. And first, it's great to be on with you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And, you know, why I went to law school was it started actually in college. I didn't really have much direction in my life and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I dabbled in journalism, but I was going to college in New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina hit the city. And that really changed sort of my perspective. At that point, I, I just wanted to be a do-gooder and give back to the community. <laughs> and the people that I saw were, were struggling. And one of the things I found was that you can't really make the type of impact that can scale and certainly not the type of impact I wanted to make without getting a little political and really getting involved with local leaders and how they get elected and the policies they pass. So I figured it out pretty quickly and I, I, I loved the work. I was frustrated with some of our leaders there, but I, you know, afterwards I just decided I'd never taken really a class on politics, but I decided to work on a campaign and that led me to Capitol Hill. And I think law school came as kind of an extension of that. I, I worked on the Hill for a couple of years for a Democrat. Democrats were about to be completely out of power. My boss was about to lose. And I just decided, well, the other thing I saw that was really effective when I was in New Orleans was the power of the legal system and how when we weren't winning political battles, we had to win legal battles, whether it was protecting certain communities on the environmental justice front, or whether it was trying to get people back into their homes and schools back open. A lot of that involved lawsuits and a lot of that involved really brave and important attorneys doing great work in the community. So I felt like law would be another way that I could make the the type of impact that I wanted to make. And so it's not uncommon to see People in the legal and political worlds go back and forth, but I certainly see why now, given how important it is to making a difference in the communities that we serve. 
Suha, you then went to Northwestern Law School, and we know that you did some really interesting things, not only in law school, but also sort of volunteer work continuing on along the political thread while you were in law school. So can you tell us just a little bit about your law school experience, the things that maybe affected your path to where you are now? And yeah, anything else that you want to share with us about that piece of, of the puzzle? Yeah. And, you know, when people ask me, about law school and what to make of it and what to do with a law degree. I, I always tell them, enjoy law school, enjoy the three years, because mm-hmm. I felt like the great value in law school was I got to to discover what I liked and what I didn't like. I did yeah. as many clinics as I could, did an, a judicial externship and realized that the thing everyone was going for, clerking or judging, working for a judge, being a judge, it were things I, I did not like. I did not, was not as interested <laughs> in that. But I really enjoyed, I, one of the reasons I picked Northwestern was because it was actually close to the Obama election campaign's headquarters. And, and so it, it allowed me to be able to help reelect the president and, and still study law. And, and that was uh, important to me. And I, and I realized that policy was you know, clearly a passion of mine, but I, I also enjoyed helping advise people on, on legal issues. And so law school was great and you know, lifelong friends and as you all know, but it, it was also a time to kind of discover myself. And, and I've heard the same experience from a lot of other people. How did you pull yourself away from, as you said, the things that people were kind of gunning for and decide like, okay, no, actually in my free time, quote unquote, as much free time as you have in law school, I'm going to, you know, volunteer at the Obama reelection headquarters and sort of take that path rather than doing, let's say a clerkship or something like that. How did you decide that you felt comfortable, I guess, kind of moving away from the things that some other people may have found to be really valuable to them, but it turned out wasn't necessarily what you wanted to do? Yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't call myself a contrarian. I mean, after law school, the first two years I worked for a big law firm. So it's not like <laughs> I started some unbeaten path, but I do think that it's certainly, if, if you look at it in terms of yourself and not compare yourself to other people, you'll get a lot more out of law school, I think. It's really easy to say, okay, well, I, I didn't get a clerkship, but everyone else wanted a clerkship. Does that mean that I didn't accomplish what I was supposed to, or I didn't get an offer from the top firm? But you know, when I did the interview, I didn't really like them anyway. Does that mean I failed? Because certainly my classmates who got the top law firm, everyone thinks of them as having succeeded. So I think it's it's hard to step away from the kind of group think that you'll see at a lot of, especially top law schools. And it's a difficult task, but it's certainly, I think, worthwhile because I see a lot of folks, not not to disparage at all top law firms, I think they're great, you know, they do important work and, and valuable work. But I see some people who go into what was supposed to be the like top path, the most prestigious path. And three or four years later, they come to the same conclusions that other people came to during law school that, mm-hmm. hey, this probably isn't for me. I should probably be thinking a little more outside the box now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, three or four years of having to figure that out while being a little miserable can weigh on someone. So it's nice to try to figure that out early on. As much as you wish you had figured that out <laughs> early on, <laughs> we know that you did, as you said, go to a big law firm as we both did as well. So How was it that you came to decide, okay, I'm going to do OCI, I'm actually going to go to this big law firm, even though I know that I am really interested in politics and policy? Why did you decide to do that after all? 
I, I got the advice that going to a big law firm that had a good name was not going to hurt you. And mm-hmm. that in the end, you can go into the policy world later on, even if you do that, but that you can't go into the big law firm world if you decide later on that's what you want to do. So it, it's harder to go from the policy world to a big law firm as a lawyer, easier as a lobbyist than it is the opposite way around. So I I figured that plus trying to justify the Northwestern price tag, it was worthwhile to at least check it out and and see what it was all about. I I figured out pretty early on within the first three to six months that it wasn't for me and that I really missed the policy world and making an impact in that arena. And so by, by month six, I was already reaching out to folks from the Obama campaign and from my previous life and asking them to keep me in mind. Did you feel like when you started to realize that the big law firm life is not for you and you were kind of revisiting things that you did in your past life, that what you had done in law school was not worthwhile or was a waste of time? I would definitely say no. If nothing else, I'm using it now. I I still have a lawyer at a tech startup when I'm not a member of the General Assembly. And I, I enjoy knowing about the law and writing about the law. And in fact, being here, I see bills on discovery and, and on CivPro and the criminal procedure. And, and I, I remember law school, I look back and I'm able to know which part of the code makes the most sense and how it actually plays out practically. So it's, no, it's very much a valuable experience. And I think anyone who does go into the public policy world, and certainly anyone that runs for office, I always tell them, you shouldn't necessarily just be political activists your whole career. It's really nice to actually have an expertise coming into this world. And to me, you know, my expertise is similar to a lot of other people's and that it's, it's, it's law, but I was able to practice and, and work on different types of law that it's applicable even now. Yeah. And so we know that you then went to, as you said, you connected with some former folks <laughs> in your past life. And we know that you actually ended up in the Obama White House. So can you tell us about that experience and the position that you held there? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think if if anyone wants to know how to get a job in an elected official's office, or certainly in like the White House or on a, in a presidential administration, it's you start with a campaign. That's where you know, if you get someone elected, they're more willing to take another look at you for jobs in their administration or in their office. And so my work on the campaign, you know, I, I gave them a lot of free work and they want to reward me. The, there's an office in, in the White House, presidential personnel, that they specifically flag people who are either the top scientists or whatever, the top of their field in the world. This is at least how the Obama administration work, either the top of, the, of their field or they worked on the campaign and, you know, the administration wants to, to help them get a job. And so especially a lot of people were leaving the last two or three years and it was a good time for me to try to come in. And it had absolutely nothing to do with the work I did in a big law firm. It was just about <laughs> what can you sell us as something that you could work on. And my Hill experience, you know, I was representing a lot of tech companies. And so I stretched that as thin as I could into being a technology law expert. And, uh, <laughs> there you go. Running this task force on technology policy in, in the White House. And, and so that that was how that came about was just them sending me opportunities. And, you know, every opportunity, it's not like it was given to you. You know, I had about 10 interviews 
And then I had to go through CIA level clearance and things like that. So it was still kind of a adventure to get there. But, you know, I certainly had the inside track having worked on the campaign. And so you were in the Obama White House towards the end of his term in a pretty interesting time in politics and for our country. So tell us about how that job ended up and that time ended up inspiring you to run for office. Yeah, absolutely. It's I, I thought, you know, even if he didn't agree with Obama himself, you know, President Obama, I think you could agree that he was very deliberate in the way he made decisions. And that's what I liked. And so there was, I learned a lot about process and about organizing a, an administration. And they had learned the hard way themselves for over six years. And so when I came in, I was coming into a well-oiled machine. Yeah. And then I was there when Donald Trump won the election. And I had committed that regardless of who wins, I would stay for a couple months to help usher in the new administration, regardless of who. So, you know, naturally, I I didn't know he was going to win, but uh, at the time I made that promise, but I was still willing. I I was asked again, you sure about this? And I said, absolutely, because I think it's important. One, it's going to help continue our work. And two, it's good for democracy. And, you know, we want to make sure that we're continuing, continuing important work for the people. And so to see the contrast between the two administrations, and it's it's not necessarily, you know, Democrat, Republican thing. It's more of a, okay, you've, you've had an administration that's a well-oiled machine for seven or eight years now, and you transition to an administration that did not know was going to win the election, number one. Two, when, when they did win the election, they completely fired their transition team. And so they had no they had to create a new transition team on the fly. And three, they didn't really have people who had developed policies on a number of fronts because they didn't have to. They, they'd focused on a handful of issues and didn't have anything else really on some of the issues we'd worked on. So it was it was very different. It was a very interesting time indeed in the sense that, you know, I, I had people ask me, how can you be in that building right now? But in the end, it was really about just like all the, the civil servants who worked there, it was just about helping the administration continue the torch. And I, you know, I, I don't regret it all because it helped save actually several programs that we'd worked on and several priorities of ours. And so it was a great experience in that sense. We know that your time in the White House ultimately kind of catapulted you to your current position. So can you tell us just a little bit of backstory about why you actually decided to run? Obviously, you had been steeped in politics for a very long time all the way back as we've now discussed pre-law school. But to actually make the jump and say, okay, I'm going to run for office is a pretty big deal. So what was your thought process like going into that? Yeah, I think there was a wave of people that decided they wanted to run after Trump got elected in the Democratic Party. And even in the Republican Party, I would say, a lot of people who wouldn't consider themselves candidates were now you know, considering themselves for, for running for office. And it, as something that used to always not be so glamorized, you know, oh, you're a politician. Oh, great. Another one. Now it was like, oh, you're running for office. Everyone was like cheering on their friends who are running for office because yeah. we want more young people. We want more interesting people from different backgrounds running for office. For me, it was the fact that, you know, I had to work a lot with the state level government officials on a variety of projects. In the end, the states have a lot of power, a lot more than people think. But the people who run for state office often... They come in on one, one or two big issues, potentially, and they have to become an expert on everything. 
And they often just kind of defer to special interest groups or other outside groups that maybe aren't always as thoughtful about how it'll affect the general public. And so I, I felt like there was our state government in Virginia wasn't really listening to us. There was a Republican majority as a result of gerrymandering in, in the state. It was starting to to be less and less because of population changes. But I, I felt like my, my state senator, for instance, was one of the worst to spend a lot of his time trying to basically do foreign policy as a state senator, protect Christians <laughs> in the Middle East and things like that. They just had nothing. And then he was big on book banning and he did things like transvaginal ultrasounds. Um, and so I, I felt like, okay, we need someone else to step up. And the local Democratic Party, a lot of folks there encouraged me to, to do it as well. And we ended up having a, a delegate run for his seat. And so that opened up the seat. But part of that was people were worried that the seat would then become a Republican seat. So I was encouraged to run for that seat at that point. But it, it was really, I felt like a result of necessity more than anything. Mm-hmm. With that, like I needed to get involved. I was I was needed. I was wanted by other people to, to run. And, and I think Trump and this wave of people wanting to, starting to see themselves as candidates, I think I kind of got swept up in that. And that's what kind of changed me from being okay, being a staffer to, to wanting to be a candidate myself. You mentioned to us when we chatted before that when you weren't in public service, you kind of felt like something was missing, but you also had the thought process that there's really no reason to put off what you really want to do in life for, for 20 years. Maybe you thought about running but thought it would be further down the road. How did your mindset change? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the the sooner you realize what you want to do, the sooner you should do it. Obviously, there's some planning that needs to be involved. But when I realized that I missed being in policy when I was working at a big firm, I got really good advice from people just saying, well, what's to stop you from doing it right now? Why do you have to be there five more years? That's just, mm-hmm. it's not a waste, but it's in, in some ways it might be. That's just five more years of you putting off what's important to you. And then I think the the mindset changing when I decided I, I, you know, I wanted to be a candidate myself and be a public servant myself was, it was really just about deciding that I could do it and deciding that I don't need to be in my fifties or sixties and, you know, white male landowner and like the had been in Virginia for decades and centuries to, to be able to do something like that. And it, it's kind of interesting. One of the first pieces of advice I got from someone was actually, you should consider changing your name because that might put people off. And the, what? wow. But, but you know, it, it was no one with a name like mine had ever gotten elected in Virginia. Um, I'm still mm-hmm. Indian American, Hindu American, South Asian elected in the state. And a lot of that, I think it took me probably a little more time to put that aside and get over that hump. So I think that was maybe a unique challenge to me and maybe to some people who are the first in their state or district. But once I got over that and once I got over the fact that, you know, it's time to just do what I want to do and I'm passionate about, I think that combination gave me the courage to kind of move forward and run. And you did, and you were successful, and now you are a delegate in the Virginia House of Delegates, and you represent District 87. So let's talk a little bit about your current job. And this is not a full-time job at the General Assembly. So you all meet 
two months, two, three months out of the year right now, which is very convenient for you to be on this podcast. And then you have other responsibilities during the year. So let's talk about first what your primary responsibilities are during this legislative session. Yeah, absolutely. There's the policy part. So during session, which is from January through March, this is the time when, you know, all those doors you've knocked on and all of those things that you promise people, this is when we're, we're trying to act upon that. And so you introduce bills, just like in Congress, the congressional systems actually is actually based on the Virginia system because the the founding fathers are mostly Virginian. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of similarities between the two. And so the, we have a house and Senate, just like anyone else. I, I introduced bills, probably the session about 16 or 17. I'm in the minority right now. So Republicans have a majority in the house, Democrats have a majority in the Senate. It's harder to pass bills when you're in the minority, but some people introduce 40 bills and get none done. Last session, I only introduced seven bills and got six of them done. So it really just depends. Ooh. Yeah. Just depends <laughs> on what you want to do, but you introduce them, you argue for them in front of a committee, you serve on committees yourself. I'm on the education committee, for instance, and I hear all the book banning bills and the critical race theory bills and oh, I vote wow. on all of them. I speak on all of them. Sometimes when it's late at night, I, I go off <laughs> just because it's, I'm grumpy and it's late and I'm hungry and, and someone's brought a bill. I think, I think a couple of weeks ago, I brought a bill, someone brought a bill to basically allow localities to discriminate against LGBTQ students and trans students. And so I, it was late and I was angry that this bill even existed and spoke out very aggressively against it. So those are the things somehow it ended up on, on social media. So, but the, there's that part of it. And then we look at Senate bills, you know, we pass bills and then when it goes to the governor for a veto, just like the federal system along these lines, I think another critical part of this job is constituent services. And so I, I answer emails. We get a lot of emails. My district in particular is the largest in the state population wise right now. Oh, wow. Uh, and change hopefully soon. But the, because of that, I get it. we get a lot of emails and I, I try to answer as many of them as I can with the help of my staff. I have two or three folks that work for me. And so they, they handle everything from DMV issues to wanting to get a commendation for their kid for accomplishing something to helping a veteran with the veteran services. So we, we do everything and that's very rewarding because you can tangibly see the effect it has on people. And then finally, there's a political part. I'm lucky enough now to be in a district that, at least for now, that is very much easy for someone like me to win. And so most of that is about helping other people while also trying to check in on constituents, raising money. It's probably the biggest part of this job uh, when it, on the political side, because you got to make those calls. You have to be able to fund your campaign. And if you're in a safe seat, the campaigns of other people. So So yeah, there's the policy, there's the political, and then there's the constituent services. Those are the three kind of things that I do. Suhas, can you just tell us in a little bit more detail what it looks like to actually go through the process? I feel like you learned this in like civics, but truly, (laughs) since you are actually introducing a bill, like what does that process look like? And what, if any, of your sort of legal skills do you bring to bear as you are crafting the legislation, introducing it, arguing it for it, sort of the whole process? Yeah, you know, there's two kinds of bills. There's the bills that an advocacy group or some stakeholders have been working on with lawyers for a long time and have fine-tuned it. And, you know, again, I've got a day job outside of the two months I'm in session. And so sometimes you don't have the ability to 
write every one of the bills you introduce or do all the research needed and all the stakeholder engagement needed. So sometimes people will, will have bills that they've worked on and fine-tuned, and then they'll bring it to me and say, hey, I know you're a champion on this issue, and I know you, this is something you said you've been wanting for a while. Can you introduce this bill and carry this bill? And so that's sort of like someone's giving you the bill, mm-hmm. you're kind of the, its champion. You didn't necessarily hold the process or write the bill yourself, but you're, you're trying to champion that cause. An example is the school board of the county I represent. They were worried about people bringing guns into school board meetings because people were, and they were using them in a threatening way. And so they asked if they could have the ability to not allow guns during school board meetings. And unfortunately, because of the way of Virginia set up, localities have to ask the state for permission and things like that. And so, okay. so they worked, the county's lawyers worked on that bill. They, they told me early on they were going to work on it and that they wanted me to carry it. And so I kind of came in at the end and I took a look at it and I actually made my own changes to it. And, and then I carried that bill through and it, it, it got signed into law. And so that was one way. Then there's other bills where I, I do actually write them. There's, a, there's a, usually a lawyer involved. At, Legislative Services has a lot of lawyers here. Then they help all the delegates. And so I'll usually ask for their advice or get them to dra- do a draft of it and I'll fine tune it. So like a bill that I introduced two years ago was on trying to help people who are being overcharged by our monopoly utility company, help them get a refund. And it was a very, very wonky bill, but I had been talking for a long time about how can we get people to have been overcharged refunds. And so I came up with this bill and the legislative services actually drafted it for me. And then I fine-tuned that. And so, yeah, that was a bill that I kind of, from the start with the help of a lawyer from an outside group put together, but you know, no one gave that bill a chance, but I, I figured why not introduce and see what happens. But that actually got passed and signed into law as well. In fact, last week and even now still, people are getting checks in the mail from it. And so it's kind of a nice victory for us because I I told people and they didn't believe me that, hey, your constituents are going to get checks in the mail because they're being overcharged. And sure enough, that's what's happened two years later. So there's times where, you know, I kind of come up with the idea with sometimes with the help of another group. But yeah, so those are kind of the two big ones. But you introduce the bill, you fight for it in committee. You, you talk to all your legislators, you try to get them to vote for it in the committees and, and just all the way through, you're just trying to use your relationships to get your bills passed. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes even one of probably my closest friend in the general assembly, the person who I replaced actually just voted against the bill that I'm carrying uh, this morning. <laughs> and he had a really hard time about it in committee. But one thing that I've learned is it's definitely a superpower to have thick skin and not take offense to anything. And there will be times where your closest friends in the building introduce things that you just think are wacky and you have to vote against and you have to tell them how bad their bill is. But And then there's sometimes where people are way on the other side of the political spectrum. And, uh, you know, I couldn't agree less with most anything they say, but then you're, they're your best friend on a certain issue. I have some folks uh, that are Tea Party conservative at the January 6th rally who I'm collaborating with on a couple of bills right now. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like the wow, yeah. nature of the game. You're, you're just trying to do everything you can for your community and your constituents. So you'll work with anyone to get anything done. Speaking of working with other people, I'm curious a little bit more about the committees. How do you go about getting I guess, is it appointed to the committees or do you choose which committees you want to be on? How does that process sort of 
work are you expected to be on a certain number of committees that it have to do with you know the issues that you're championing just give us a little more about that piece yeah yeah the speaker of the house just like in congress chooses your committees and just like in the u.s congress there's kind of a tradition so like i was on education committee the last two years and so when they're choosing committees this time it made sense to put me back on education and those who don't know education and transportation are actually very much state specific issues uh, the states have a lot of power over those i'm still too junior to be on the appropriations committee which has all the they set up the the budget and funding for certain projects but but on the policy part of education and transportation I'm on, I'm on both of those committees and they were important to me and so even though there's a republican speaker you know you have to have a certain number of democrats or minority party on these committees and so they, they put me on both of those but you know there's times where that can change a little bit like they might take someone off of a committee because the majority party knows that that person won't vote with them on certain issues for instance, they they probably wouldn't put me on the committee that looks like campaign finance because I'm very I'm for public funding of elections. I want to get completely <laughs> out of politics, and so they probably never put me on that committee because of my views. Probably neither party would put me on that committee for that reason. But you know, on something like education, I think I've shown to be pretty consistent on that, and so they you know, put me on there. Okay, awesome. And so then you also mentioned constituent services. Obviously, it's a really important part of your work and something that's really rewarding. Is there a favorite part of the constituent services piece that you really like to do? Or is it just more holistically that kind of working with your constituents is something you find really rewarding? Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples. I mean, I've prevented people from getting kicked out of their apartment. We've turned the lights on literally for a lot of like restaurants and homes. Someone got overcharged by the, the utility company, but by $20,000. And the utility company said that it wasn't their fault. And so I I I was able to untangle that and and get the right answer on that. We've done almost everything for everyone. And uh, it's very rewarding to see, you know, it's not on the scale of passing a bill that gets everyone in Virginia a check in the mail, but it's certainly, even if it's only maybe 50 to 100 people we've helped on a very personal basis, it's still extremely rewarding, especially because some of those things have been life-changing, getting people who had certain illnesses a vaccine during the pandemic, getting people tests when they couldn't get a test anywhere else, things like that, uh, helpful and important to people. Similarly, Suhas, is there a bill that you're most proud of that you've worked on and that's been passed? I love the bills that people tell me I, I'm, I would never pass in 100 years. Yeah. I love the the utility bill I talked about was the first one and people couldn't believe that we did that. And it took a little bit, it took a lot of work. And and then last year, again, there was a, a monopoly. I think I have a thing for monopolies. I really hate them. And so it's having <laughs> a monopoly toll road, a private toll road that goes through our county that had inflated the price of tolls for, for decades People told me, don't touch that issue. It will, you know, you'll have to put egg on your face. There's no way you can pass the bill. They just own this town. And they hired the two most powerful lobbies in in Richmond, and we were still able to pass a bill. And wow. so, yeah, I don't know if it's luck or I've gotten two things done that no one thought could happen. So I, maybe it, it was part luck, part just like people didn't expect anything to happen. And so they didn't realize it was going to happen until it was too late. But 
certainly I think what helped was I came in, I was a freshman, I was in the majority. I think a lot of people were trying to feel out a Democratic majority. This was the first time in history we'd ever had a progressive majority. So that was a little different. I think even if you, uh, I can imagine in other states when you have like a completely new regime, there's a lot of things that can just sneak by because people just don't know how to, even the legislators themselves don't know how to, don't know what's acceptable and what's not anymore when you've got new people. Yeah, mixing it up. That's awesome. I just want to rewind for a moment and talk a little bit about the process of actually getting elected. So we know, you know, your motivation for running for office, but what was that like to actually go out and run for office? I know it's a lot of like blood, sweat and tears and not an easy thing to do. So what did that look like for you? Yeah, you know, running for office is, especially when it's at the level where you're, you know, the amount of people you represent is maybe 100 to 150,000 people or or less, like even at the very local level, you do have the time to meet as a lot of your voters, right? If you're running for president, you can't knock on every person's door. People try in like certain states like Iowa, but like, you're not going to meet every person that's going to vote for you but you can tr- certainly almost get there in an election like the one I had. And so if that's the case, you have to go out there and try to meet people face to face. Anytime there's a group of more than five people meeting, try to be there and you know try to just be at their doorstep whenever you can. So my schedule was from 9am to noon, I would do work work. And at that point I was, you know, I had a kind of a law partner and was kind of sharing the load with her on working with various clients to just pay the bills. And then from about noon to about three, I was just calling, dialing for dollars and calling everyone I knew, asking to support my campaign. And then from about three o'clock until dark, I went out and I knocked on doors and I had a list of all the people who had voted in previous elections. And and I just made my pitch door by door. And so it was, I think I knocked on 20,000 doors in, in the end. Oh and it was a yeah. It, it, was, it was. I was in great shape by the end. <laughs> Added <laughs> bonus. The election yeah, workout exercise. plan. Yeah, some people say they gain a lot of weight during, but if if, if you're the candidate, you lose a lot of weight. If you're doing <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was a lot of hard work. You have to do it all. So you you have to, and even if you're not in a race type of race, like you're running for Congress, and you don't have the time to let's say knock on every door you should still be going to all the events. You should still be raising the money. You should still be trying to talk to every elected official in the area and get their endorsement, or if not, see why. If they aren't going to endorse you, try to get them to at least hold off on on supporting your opponents a lot, like blunt their enthusiasm of support for other people and make them feel like you winning isn't going to be the end of their end of the road for them. You know, so there's a lot of hard work that went into it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I did have the benefit of having, I, I worked on campaign before. So I did have the benefit of knowing what it took and I knew what I was going to be signing up for before I did it. So it wasn't, you know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was actually, even now I, you know, I tell people I, I really like campaigning because I, that's the time where you get to one, talk about all your accomplishments. No one really <laughs> knows about Unless you're the president of the United States, no one really knows your accomplishments. And even then, sometimes right. they don't know the president's accomplishments. So mm-hmm. no one really knows your accomplishments until you tell them. And so that's your chance to tell them. And it's also your chance to really connect with people on an individual level and 
even if it's someone who disagrees with you on a lot of issues, you know, the, sometimes our data is kind of wacky. And so, you know, the data will say this is a, a strong Democrat or a lean Democrat, and I'll knock on the door and the person hasn't voted for a Democrat in 20 years, but I'll still talk to them and I'll get their perspective and maybe we'll, you know, they're not going to vote for me, but they, they appreciate me making the effort, um, certainly. How long is your term, Suhas? Our terms are two years. Okay. Uh, so just like just like the, the U.S. Congress. And I think it's, you mentioned campaigning before, the, the campaign doesn't start three months before the election. So because we're in two-year terms, right now, this is generally not a year in which I would run, but I still try to go out and knock on some doors sometimes or and certainly make calls and certainly raise money. Former Attorney General Mark Herring says that you win elections in the offer when no one else is campaigning. And I think that's mm-hmm. very because it's the effort you put in. I try to call constituents back personally when they call angrily and just talk them through what they're going through and why yeah. they feel that way when they're so angry. So whenever my staff gets an angry call, I tell them they take the number and I call them back. So it's things like that. And they won't vote for me, but they also yeah. won't go out and, and knock on a ton of doors for my opponent either. And they won't give them a lot of money because they're like, oh, you know, that's Suhas. He's, I don't agree with him, but he's not so bad. So I, I think all of it all of it adds up to being successful in this arena. Suhas, so what legal skills do you use in your role as a delegate? Or how, how does your legal training help you in that role? Yeah, I always wonder what legal skills are. I guess they're certainly they're against reading <laughs> statutes. <laughs> but I, I guess if it's writing, you know, I, I do a lot of writing. If it's reading code sections, I do a lot of that too. So I guess I use all of it. Being a policymaker, it certainly comes in handy. There's a lot of lawyers, not as many as you would think, but there's a lot of lawyers in the General Assembly and in, really in any political body. I think having those skills is, is immensely helpful. If nothing else, you can say, well, I'm a lawyer, so I know about this and that. (laughs) Do you feel like you learned some of those skills in law school or that it was much more sort of the practical aspect of things once you graduated from law school? I'm just thinking from the perspective of some of our listeners who are in law school currently, whether there are skills that they can sort of hone and develop in law school or whether it's much more about sort of the on-the-job experience that they might also be able to get in law school by doing externships and things, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would suggest if anyone is in law school now or plans to go to law school, if you, if you want to get the kind of the skills that are helpful in this arena, I, I don't know if all law schools have like a clinic related to like public policy. I know one of the, actually four of the bills I introduced this session, I, I worked with UVA Law School. Mm-hmm. They have a clinic there on public policy and they they helped to put together, I worked with them on legislation this session that their two clinic students helped put together. And so that's certainly an easy way. And I, I, I like I said before, I, I took a lot of clinics and I did a lot of as many practical things as, as possible in law school. I always feel like that I, it's an easier way to learn than learning theory in a, in a class. And so- mm-hmm. If that's offered at a school, I recommend that. Okay, perfect. You mentioned that, you know, you ended up on social media the other day, and obviously you're in the public eye somewhat frequently. So I'm curious, how do you sort of handle that piece of being a delegate? Obviously, like when you're on a campaign, you're a little bit more, at least in some roles behind the scenes, but everything you're doing is, has your name on it and you're at the forefront, you're in the public eye. Yeah. 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 How do you handle that part of the job? 
Yeah, I know. And I'm, I'm someone who doesn't shy away from putting their family on social media. Uh, my wife and I joke that we're grocery store famous. So we're not like, <laughs> I like love okay. it. Amazing. it's not like we're on TV every day, but like at least every trip to the grocery store, though, there, there's going to be one person who kind of says hi and remembers me from something somewhere. So it's not actually like being like, I don't know, president or something or, or like even a high level like cabinet member or a senator, but I'm just well known enough to where I, I enjoy it and I, I don't mind being in the public eye. But you know, maybe if I like became really famous, let's talk again because I, I don't know if I'd want to be recognized everywhere. But yeah, I, I think most politicians, I, you'd be surprised I, how many people don't know who their member of Congress is, don't know kind of the first thing about, you know, people know who the president is and the vice president, but then they seem to not necessarily know a lot of their local or state politicians, certainly. So it hasn't been an issue yet. Okay. All right. Fair. Well, in addition to being grocery store famous, we also know that you work at a tech startup for part of the year, which is super interesting. So I'm curious just a little bit about your job in the tech startup, but also kind of how you balance everything, because you've told us the many, many components of your job and also the fact that sort of campaigning does not stop throughout the rest of the year. So it's not like you just have the legislative session and then you pick up and go to the startup and you're like, okay, great, that's it. It's obviously a very continuous process. So how do you kind of manage to keep every all the balls in the air at the same time? Yeah, I think being an elected official, first, you have to have a very supportive family, especially my wife has been super helpful and supportive. And I've got two kids that are under two. And so it's not easy to have to bounce. I get to kind of come home and I'll do bath time in the evenings. And and when I'm not in session, it's it's a lot easier, but it's not easy. I, two months out of the year, Monday through Friday, I'm, I'm not with them at all. And so I, you know, I get my in-laws to help. The other thing that my job at the tech startup, they know what I'm doing and they're mm-hmm. supportive of it. Mm-hmm. And so they know that there might be, if the governor calls an emergency session, they know that they might lose me for a day. Mm-hmm. If, you know, my campaign's getting kind of dicey, I'm going to talk to them about, okay, I need a month off. Like, can I make it up later on? They're very helpful. Uh, I think it helped that I was probably with them early in the company's founding. And so yeah. they feel some guilty, but I've also been able to get the, the work done, I think. And I think when you're so busy, I was never efficient in law school. I was actually, I was, I was the one that just kind of took forever to read through something or get something done and just kind of slacked <laughs> off the whole time. But I always found that the people who were married with kids, like were so efficient. And I don't know why. Because, you know, <laughs> no choice. I don't get something, exactly. You have no choice. So yeah, now if I'm, if I kind of slack off and if not efficient, that's time I'm not going to spend with my kids. So like uh, that's time that my staff is going to be yelling at me that I didn't you know, help make phone calls or knock on doors. So I, I, I'm i very efficient with my time now and it's just mostly out of necessity. So Has, do you have mentors or role models that you have looked to along the way in your career? That's a great question. I think, I think that I've, found the value of of mentors very early in my career. And so I basically, I c- couldn't count the number of mentors I've had. And I just, I'll take advice from anybody. And especially if like three or four people are saying the same thing, that's why I know that they're onto something. But 
Yeah, really early on, I had a friend in the Obama administration who's since passed away, unfortunately, but he was really helpful in helping me kind of figure out what to do and make the most out of my time in law school because he'd been through law school and done kind of the same things and gone to the Obama administration. So he was really helpful early on. My predecessor in the General Assembly, who's now the state senator in my area, he was helpful in telling me kind of the basics of what people care about in our community and, and how to campaign. And, you know, in the White House, I had you know, three or four people who were really helpful in, in various capacities, including the now Secretary of the Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, who was the Chief of Staff at the time. And so I think it's, if, if I could give advice to anyone, it's take the mentors when they come, come along. If someone's willing to offer you advice and there's someone who is in a position you want to be in, take their advice, hang on to them and call them early and often. And I, I try to give back. I try to mentor people when they they want me to. And I try to give advice when people ask me to. There's a lot of people who are running for office now that have given me a call and asked me the things to do. And I and and so I tell them what I know and what I don't know. And then I give them a couple more names to call. But mentors, are, I think, are the key to a lot of people's success and certainly mine. Yeah, no, we could not agree with that more. I think, I mean, mentors are helpful for this next question, I think, but I'm curious if you ever feel like imposter syndrome, or at least when you were starting out as a delegate, obviously you'd, you'd been on campaigns, but you know, you'd never actually been in the hot seat yourself. So did you ever have that feeling? Do you still have that feeling? And if you do, how do you deal with it? Yeah, I, I'm not someone who always had confidence and it may, may not seem that way because I'm an elected official and I talk very confidently every day, but it's difficult because because you know some of the things that I say and do, once I say them, they're there forever, right? That makes me a little more hesitant sometimes, but then you just have to come out and you have to do your best. I, I think being comfortable with yourself, comfortable to your positions, and then having the confidence to say it, you just have to do it. So Suhas, we will not take up any more of your time during legislative session, but we do have one last question for you. And that is, what does success mean to you? Yeah, yeah um, that's a deep question. Wow. Yes, just <laughs> like a light, a little <laughs> a softball nice to end, end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I, the success is whatever you make of it. I mean, I think if success to me is finding what you actually want to do and what's rewarding to you and going out and doing it and doing it the way that makes you proud and helps other people in the process. So if what you want to do is you want to build skyscrapers and you find that out early on and you go out and you build a skyscraper, that's success to me, right? It's a little harder sometimes in the political arena because sometimes I feel like I have goals that are very lofty and that are sometimes unattainable or literally out of your control, unattainable. But I do think that it's it's important to step back and remember one, I, you know, you've got I'm privileged to be in a role like this and doing the best I can is and controlling what I can control is, is, is all I can do. And I should think of everything I do get done as a success and not as a, okay, I got this done. What's the next what's thing? Next? What's next on my list, right? We, you know, I think it's important to step back and remember that we're doing good for the community. And this, these are all the things we got done and, and consider that success. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank we had you. such a conversation. We really appreciate your time and we will end there. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks, Suhas. 
Don't go away. There's more to come in the due diligence portion of our show. Here we are. Due diligence time, Allison. Yes, indeed. Well, tell me what has stuck out for you from our episode with Suhas. We made it pretty clear because it relates to the quote that we picked for the beginning of the episode, which would come as no surprise to our listeners. Yeah. So I just love that Suhas highlighted the fact that if you find something that you really love very early on in your career, that it's okay to just go for that. Mm -hmm. In one of our very first episodes, we talked about our personal experience and kind of grappling with, is it too early to make a change? Or if you go into a particular practice very early on, are you going to kind of get stuck in that? And so I think his sort of willingness to just go for it when he knew probably pre-law school, honestly, that he really loved politics and being involved in campaigns and maybe that he wanted to run himself as a politician, that he only needed to be a few years in to actually go ahead and do that. And he had a number of hurdles to actually get to that place, but he knew he wanted to do it. And so, you know, he got the advice essentially that there's no better time to do it than now. If it's something that you know that you really want to do, you don't need to wait that five, 10, 15 extra years. (laughs) And I just really appreciated that he actually did go for it and yeah. like, look at where he's at now. I know. And I think our very first interview with Sambal Siddiqui, who's the mm-hmm. current mayor of Cambridge, Massachusetts, she said something similar that maybe she had thought about running for office, but thought maybe it was something she would do down the road. And, and we had other guests both this season and last express a similar sentiment. And I think many of us have to really work at breaking down the thought that you can only be in a position of power and influence when you're have hit a certain age milestone. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to see that many of our contemporaries and many of our guests on this podcast are challenging that and actually making a decision to do things a little bit earlier in their career because it's great to have different voices in whatever we're doing. And certainly some diversity is provided by people at different stages of their lives. So I enjoyed that too, hearing from Suhas about how he, he finally decided to run for office because he certainly had put in the time, had worked on a number of campaigns and had worked for a variety of elected officials. So Not just a thing in politics, but something that's been highlighted and expressed by both of our guests who who are elected officials. So that was cool to hear. And we both, that was a thing that stuck out to both of us from this episode. But I did want to clarify because we didn't edit this out. And it was my not very well, I'm doing it again, but it was not a very good question that I asked Suhas, which was (laughs) basically about whether he thought going to law school was a good use of his time. And and I, of course, did not mean to express that law school is a waste of time because clearly having, being a co-host on a podcast about why law school (laughs) and a legal (laughs) degree are great. Um, But what I really wanted to ask him and what he answered was more just how have you been able or has it been useful for you to have the skills that you developed in law school and what you're, and what you're doing now 
even though it's not the traditional practice of law. And again, I mean, he is an excellent public speaker and knew what I was getting at, but I wanted to clarify that because we didn't want to edit that out or change it in any way because we love Suhas's answer, but my questioning could use a little bit of improvement. So just wanted to clarify that for everyone listening. Appreciate that. I knew what you meant, but <laughs> it's always it's always helpful. Sometimes the words don't come out exactly how you hope they will. But anyway, so thank you to Suhas for taking the time to speak with us on this episode during his busy legislative session. And we also want to point out a couple of other things now that we are about, you know, kind of halfway through season two that we hope you guys think our sound is better this season because we have a wonderful editor who is helping us do all of that technical stuff that we did ourselves last season purely by Googling things and spending (laughs) probably 95 more hours than our editor has to spend doing it. So we're really excited to have more professional sound this season. And we hope that you all notice that even when I can't get my microphone connected to my computer. And then two, we are on Instagram. We have posted a number of fun behind the scenes things from each episode And we also have a LinkedIn newsletter that will update you on every new episode that comes out each week. So our Instagram handle is at personaljxpodcast. And if you'd like to subscribe to our newsletter, you can find me on LinkedIn and subscribe there. We also will tweet about it each week when we have a new episode out. But not only do we appreciate having a number of wonderful and devoted followers, but we also love if you can share the podcast, if there's an episode that you think might be helpful to someone you know, or a friend, family member, a colleague, please share it because that's how we get more listeners. And that's how we'll hopefully be able to keep doing this and and interviewing more people. So check us out on all the social medias. Allison and I are working hard to try to figure out (laughs) how to do all of those things. Um, So thank you for listening and we will see you next time. See you next time. Personal Jurisdiction is powered and distributed by Simplecast. You don't have to wait until next week to hear more. You can find us online at personaljxpod.com and on Twitter at personaljxpod. Don't forget to subscribe to Personal Jurisdiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen so that you can be updated on the latest and greatest from Personal Jurisdiction. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate us five stars and leave a positive review so that other listeners can find our show too.